If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And while you're turning there, I just want to say personally what an honor it is to be here at First Eulis, to be back here. Um, I, I thank God for his grace in this room. I thank God for your pastor, John Metter, has been an encouragement to me, an example to me, a friend to me, uh, both in pastoral ministry and then in my role in the IMB. And I just, I praise God for this brother. I trust you know that you are a blessed people to be shepherded with the word on mission in the world by this brother. And, uh, and then just for this church, obviously the rich historical legacy and then glorious present reality of what's happening in and through this church, both in this community and then as Pastor John was talking about, the way you are a part of this bigger picture, I, I hope and I just would reiterate in your giving as he was sharing, you are joined together with this coalition of churches. Sometimes people ask, like, what's the point of a Southern Baptist Convention? The whole reason it started in the beginning was to pull together the resources of churches for the spread of the gospel in the world, to do what one, one church over here and one church can, over here can do wonderful things, but when those churches come together, can accomplish all kinds of things. And that's what's represented in the SBC. So on behalf of thousands of missionaries right now who are serving around the world because of the way you give and the way you, you pray and the way you support. I wanna thank you. I was just uh, recently with uh, some of them in the Amazon, so I discovered there's a reason not a lot of people live in the Amazon. Um, so you, uh, you, you fly into this small town, you get on a much smaller plane and fly into a much smaller town and then uh, you, you get off, you go to the river, you get on this little boat, you go down the Amazon and off some tributaries. Uh, we picked up a couple of uh, guides from a very remote tribe uh, there in the Amazon. And then we, we got to where we were gonna get out. We got out, we walk into this canopy of trees with packs on our back. And immediately when you walk into the Amazon, you are greeted by a swarm of creatures you did not know existed until that moment. Um, there's all kinds of species of insect bug that only exist in the Amazon and they are ready to say hello to you. Um, so I, I found out, so off is like 2% or, or yeah, off is like 2% DEET. So I found 100% DEET, I sprayed it all over me, but I discovered these creatures eat DEET for breakfast. <laughs> it does nothing to deter them. Uh, and then they just, and you can be wearing, you know, you're wearing pants, shirt, they somehow get through that and just start feasting on you. And our guides could tell we were a bit bothered by this and they were trying to encourage us. So here's how they encouraged us. They said, well, don't worry. Like the most dangerous animals, like the jaguar and the snake in the Amazon, those animals are sleeping during the day while we're hiking. So you don't have to worry about them, which is encouraging during the day 
But then it hits you, oh, oh, so the most dangerous animals actually come out when you are least conscious. And so, uh, so you get to nightfall, which you're no longer looking forward to. You, uh, you're going to sleep in a hammock because you don't want to be on the ground in the Amazon at night. And so, uh, so you've got this hammock. You set it up between two trees, and uh, you, you climb in and just kind of cocoon yourself. You have a mosquito net over you, so you kind of put this mosquito net, you slide it above you and cinch it behind you, and you're thankful for this mosquito net and the uh, relief you now have from all these uh, flying creatures, but it hits you that this net will do nothing when the jaguar comes your way, when the snake is going, and so you're laying there in the pitch black dark, you can't see your hand in front of your face, you can't see anything, but you can hear things. So the Amazon comes alive at night, just all kinds of sounds around you, and uh, it's a sanctifying experience to, uh, to, as you're falling asleep, which we should always, like, whenever we fall asleep, we're not guaranteed to wake up the next morning, but you feel that in a whole new way in the Amazon. So just uh, lay there, and you close your eyes, and you're just praying, Lord, I... I would love to wake up in the morning and then you fall asleep praying that and then you wake up and, and you're, you're breathing and you're just worshiping. From the moment you rise, you're just, Lord, thank you. Thank you for another day. So, uh, so that was, that's the routine in the Amazon. Well, at night, we would, uh, so we're doing all kinds of things during the day. At night, we'd gather around the campfire with these, uh, these guys from this tribe and uh, that first night, we gathered around, and they started sharing some stories with us from their tribes, their history, fascinating stuff. And, and then they said, do you guys have any stories to share? And so I just jumped in uh, and started sharing from the end of Mark 4 and, and into Mark chapter 5. I don't know if you remember that part in the book of Mark where it's just like back to back to back to back stories about Jesus' authority over nature and demons and disease and then death. And so I just began to share with them about the one true God, how he's come to us in the person of Jesus and has shown his authority over all things, authority over death itself. And they were just sitting there, just intently listening. At the end of telling those stories, they said, we've never heard these stories before. Would you mind if we tell them to our tribes? I said, no, I don't mind at all. And, and that's what we would do every night. We'd just sit around telling stories about a Jesus that these guys had never heard of. The last night, we're sitting there, and one of them said, we want to hear some more stories because it, it, when you tell these stories about Jesus, it feel like, feels like my heart is about to beat out of my chest. And one of them said, as you tell these stories, I just feel like I'm so far from the one true God. And it's like there's, there's a stain in my heart. Is there any way for that to be clean? That's what he asked. So obviously to be able to share the gospel, but I want you to see in those couple of men, those two men from this remote tribe, a picture that is a reality for over two billion people in the world right now. I, I hope this is not news to you, but even if it's something you heard before, I've prayed that it would land on a fresh heart and mind in this moment. Like, 
two billion plus people in the world just like you and me. Students, parents, adults like kids just like ours who have never heard the name of Jesus, have never heard about him or know about him as much as most of us know about like Confucius. Yeah, I think he taught something, I'm not sure what. They're called unreached. Now that word's important uh, to distinguish from the word lost. So there's a big difference between spiritually lost and not having been reached with the gospel. So people are just as lost in Eulis as they are in Somalia. Right, to be in sin, apart, separated from God, you're lost in Eulis, you're lost in Somalia, it's the same. Here's the difference though. There's access to the gospel in Eulis that there's not access to in Somalia. So I don't know if you've noticed, there's a few churches in Eulis, Dallas, Fort Worth. And there's, a, by God's grace, a large number of Christians, gospel-believing Christians. So there's access to the gospel here. In Somalia, you don't, you don't have churches. And you don't have hardly any Christians, even if there are Christians there, if they speak up about the gospel, they'll have their throats slit immediately. So there's a difference when it comes to access. If you're born in Somalia and you're born in Eulis. That's why we don't say, sometimes people say, I, I don't know why we talk about unreached people around the world. Like there's unreached people in my office here. There's unreached people in my neighborhood. The reality is those people are not unreached. You say, how do you know? Because they're in your office. They're in your neighborhood. They have access to the gospel. You're it. We're talking about people in the world, so just let us soak in like a couple of billion of them who don't have access to the gospel. They're on a road, they're in sin, separated from God, on a road that leads to an eternal hell, and get this, nobody has ever even told them how they can go to heaven through Jesus. Nobody's even told them. It's not that they've heard and rejected that news. They just have never even had somebody share it with them. And for the next few minutes in this worship gathering with the word of God, dependence on the spirit of God, I just, I wanna challenge every single follower of Christ in this room. Before you lay your head on your pillow tonight, at some point today, to just say to God, do you want me to take the gospel to them? Like beyond Euless, beyond Dallas-Fort Worth, this year, beyond where the gospel has gone, do you want me to go and take the gospel where it's not yet gone? I'm just calling you to ask God that. And to be open to all kinds of ways he might answer. So he might say, I'm gonna lead you to go on a short-term trip to some place in the world where the gospel's not yet gone. Like take a week out of your life, a week, to go out of your comfort zone. Or, or maybe a little bit longer, maybe a month or two, or think, think of summer. Or maybe students, like a summer or a semester, or maybe a year or two, maybe a gap year in between high school and college or, or during college at some point. Like, 
I was having a conversation the other day in an Uber ride with uh, a guy who oversees in that particular region uh, the sending of Mormon student missionaries. He's telling about all the thousands that are going because all these parents are raising up their kids to expect before they go to college to go somewhere else in the world. And I'm thinking, if they are that committed to raising up kids to take a false gospel around the world, then what does that say about us who have the one and only true gospel? What are we raising our kids to do? I think I see like a whole group of students sitting over here. Like, what are we saying is most important? That they're great at sports, that they have great grades, they get into a good school so they have a good job and get a good degree and be successful. I'm not saying any of those things are bad, but I am saying in the end, all of those things are not gonna be what's gonna matter most a trillion years from now. What's gonna matter most a trillion years from now is if students know God, like love God, and have spent their lives making the grace and greatness of God known in the world. That'll matter, matter 10 trillion years from now. So the goal of biblical parenting is not to raise kids to get a good education degree, job this. The goal of biblical parenting is to raise students to accomplish a great commission. That changes the way we think about, about students. As you think about your lives and, and school and then, and then jobs, so, so this is where, as you say, God, do you want me to go? Be open to, he might lead people to leave jobs behind to go somewhere else for the spread of the gospel in the world. Many missionaries serving with the IMB have done exactly that, but that's not the only way. So God might also lead you not to leave a job, but actually to leverage a job to spread the gospel where it's not yet gone. So most of the places in the world where the gospel is not yet gone, you can't get into those countries with a missionary visa, but you can get in as a teacher, you can get in as a doctor, you can get in as a nurse, you can get in as an engineer, you can get in as a business person. And so think through, what are the opportunities for you to use your gifts and skills? Why not think, maybe the default is not here, maybe the default is to use my skills somewhere else for the spread of the gospel. Through work and then beyond work, so re retirees, did you know that Uncle Sam's money will go not just toward improving a golf game, but spreading the gospel? <laughs> Same money. God has designed, what if God has designed Uncle Sam and retirement to fuel the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth? <laughs> there's, there's one country, Malaysia, right now. Um, they, uh, they have a whole system with economic incentives. They're trying to persuade Westerners to come and retire there. With all kinds of economic incentives to come and, and live nicely in Malaysia. Malaysia is one of the most unreached people groups in the world. So retirees in this room, I exhort you, go live it up in Malaysia. <laughs> live it up for the spread of the God. What, what better way to spend your last days before you see your Savior's face than making him known when people have never even heard him. So that's so all kinds of possibilities. God might answer that prayer, but I just wanna invite you to pray it. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, you mentioned like Somalia. Like, Lord, do you want me to go to Somalia? I don't know if I'm willing to pray that. 
Like Somalia, they're getting their throats slit if they confess faith in Christ. And that's a, a reality, difficulty, danger. Like unreached people are unreached for a reason. They're hard to reach, they're difficult to reach, they're dangerous to reach, all the easy ones are taken. So why should every single follower of Christ in this room at least pray, God, do you want me to go wherever you want me to go? Why should students say, oh, I'm gonna potentially give my life going to a place like that? And why should parents say, we want you to go to a place like that? I was just in a conversation. Uh, uh, I really need to get in the text, but um, I was just in a conversation uh, a couple weeks ago with a professor at a Christian university, and he said um, that the trustees at this university have now forbidden the university to send students into Muslim countries on mission because of the difficulties and danger and risk involved. And I said, what? do trustees not wanna see the Great Commission accomplished? And he said, oh, the trustees aren't the biggest issue, the parents are, because the parents don't wanna send their kids there. So why, why in the world, this, this sounds crazy in the world, like why would a parent wanna send a child to go somewhere in the world for the spread of the gospel? Why would a child wanna see uh, uh, their mom or dad go somewhere difficult in the world for the spread of the gospel. Well, I'm glad you asked. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about this. Look in the very beginning, the middle of this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 30. So Paul is writing a letter to the church at Corinth and he is risking his life for the spread of the gospel as he's writing this letter. You look in verse 30, he says, why are we in danger every hour? So he's basically referring to his life He's in danger every day. He starts talking about, I die every day. In verse 31, I protest, my brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die every day. Verse 32, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fight with the beasts at Ephesus? Basically, he is saying, I'm walking into difficulty, dangerous circumstances for the spread of the gospel. Why? And 1 Corinthians 15 is written in part to answer the question, Why? And it's not just so that we know why Paul's doing that. You look at the very end of the chapter, verse 58, he closes it out. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So the whole point here is Paul's saying, I want you to be that kind of steadfast and immovable in your faith, doing whatever God is leading you to do, no matter what that may cost. So I wish we had time. We don't have time to dive in depth into all the intricacies of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is a loaded chapter. But what I wanna do is I wanna show you three prominent themes that uncover three reasons why every follower of Christ must be willing to go into difficult, hard places for the spread of the gospel. Why, why should you be willing to do that? Your life, the lives of those you love around you, why should this church be willing to send out more people into hard places? Here's, here's the reasons. Number one, because death is coming. Because death is coming. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about death and life. You look in the uh, middle of the chapter, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, also a reference to death. For as by a man came death, by a man who is also, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all should be made alive. 
So death and life there. The whole point, all in Adam will die, like every single person, the human race. Death is our destiny for every one of us. And not just our destiny, but 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says death is our enemy, our final enemy. So this is important for all of us to remember. Death is coming. Think about just the implications of that. It means our death is coming. Let's just come face to face with the humbling reality in this room. Every single one of us, unless Jesus comes back, we will die. And it could be today for any one of us. There's not a person in this room that is guaranteed to be here at the end of this worship gathering. Not one of us guaranteed to wake up tomorrow. Death is coming. I don't, I don't mean to be depressing, but I do mean to be eye-opening. You and I are not on this earth for very long. We don't have a lot of time. The Bible says your life is a vapor. It's a mist. My students don't think, oh, I got, I got 60 years left. You don't know that. You don't know if you have 60 more seconds. Now one of us knows in this room. We're, we're a vapor. We're here one second, gone the next. Life is short, so don't waste it. Realize, come face to face with this reality. And it will change the way you live in this world. I think about John Patton, missionary to the New Hebrides. So this brother served for 10 years as a pastor of a growing church in Scotland. But the Lord began to burden him with a heart for the New Hebrides, this group of Pacific islands made up of cannibalistic peoples. One particular island he was drawn to 20 years before a couple of missionaries had gone to this island, had been killed and cannibalized, eaten. So he begins to share with the church his desire to go there. And the church starts to dissuade him. Don't think about going there. And he wrote, John Patton wrote, amongst many who sought to deter me was one dear old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument always was the cannibals. You will be eaten by cannibals. So John Patton looked back at this man and he said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. The old man left the room exclaiming, after that I have nothing more to say. <laughs> so at the age of 33, Patton moves to the New Hebrides with his wife. The journey ahead was not easy. Within months of arriving, his wife and newborn child both died, and Patton found himself digging their graves with his bare hands. It is a humbling biography to read. He faced threat after threat on his life, but in the years to come, countless cannibals across the New Hebrides came to know the peace of Christ. That people was reached, that island was reached with the gospel, and the church back in Scotland and England was mobilized to wake up and get the gospel to more like them. Oh. Your life changes in this world when you realize you're not in this world for very long. You don't have a lot, like we all right now stand on the porch of eternity. The most healthy among us will have, what, 70, 80, 90 years with 
trillions and trillions of years ahead of us. We got a vapor, a mist, short life here. None of us guaranteed tomorrow, so let's not waste the day. We don't invest our lives here in temporary trinkets. We invest our lives here in eternal treasure. We don't spend our lives here on fleeting pleasures and foolish temporary pursuits. We spend our lives on what will matter forever. Raise your eyes and think about what's gonna matter forever. Because our death is coming and don't miss it, others' death is coming too. So here's why it makes sense for you to go, for you to go with your family to places in the world where the gospel's not yet gone because there's over two billion people who, who've never heard this gospel and they're not guaranteed tomorrow either. Like they're plunging into an eternal hell today. Like there's an urgency here. An eternal hell. Like I know we don't like to think about this a lot, but Jesus talked about this a lot. He described a place of conscious torment in Luke 16. Outer darkness in Matthew 22. Mark 9, 43 through 48, he described an everlasting future filled with fiery agony. So some people look at those, those texts in the Bible and say, well, do you think that's like literal language? Maybe it's symbolic. Maybe fire, just symbolic. Well, okay, if it's symbolic. I'll just grant that for a second. What's it a symbol for? A winter retreat? Summer vacation? No, if, if it's symbolic language, then it's symbol for a horrifying place to be. The whole point of a symbol is to express in words that which cannot be expressed in words. It should bring no comfort to us to think that maybe language in the Bible about hell is symbolic. And not just, not just this picture of a horrifying place to be, but a horrifying place to be that will never, ever end. You look at Revelation 14, 19, and 20. It all, they all use the words forever and ever to describe hell. Forever and ever, like forever would have been sufficient. Put a period on it. Instead of that, it's and ever to make sure it's soaked in. Like there is real, eternal judgment awaiting sinners before holy God, like never ending. Jonathan Edwards would speak with tears in his eyes. He would say, to help your conception, imagine yourself to be cast into a fiery oven, all of a glowing heat, or in the midst of a blowing brick kiln, or of a great furnace, where your pain would be as much greater than that occasion by accidentally touching a coal of fire as the heat is greater. Imagine also that your body were to lie there for a quarter of an hour full of fire, as full within and without as a bright coal of fire, all the while full of quick sense. What horror would you feel at the entrance of such a furnace? How long would that quarter of an hour seem to you? If it were to be measured by a glass, how long would the glass seem to be running? And after you had endured it for one minute, how overbearing would it be to you to think that you had yet to endure the other 14? What would be the effect on your soul if you knew you must lie there enduring the torment to the full for 24 hours? 
how much greater would be the effect if you knew you must endure it for a whole year and how vastly greater still if you knew you must endure it for a thousand years. Oh, then how would your heart sink if you thought, if you knew that you must bear it forever and ever, that there would be no end, that after millions of millions of ages, your torment would be no nearer to an end than when you first begun and that you would never ever be delivered from that place. We're not just playing games in this room. This is is real. This is God saying there's real eternal judgment. For all those apart from Christ, which is why it says in Romans, that's why we must make the good news of Christ known to them. Because their death is coming. Our death is coming. Their death is coming. Live for what matters and eternity. That's the first reason why. We must at least pray, God, do you want me to go? Second reason why. Because death is coming, number one. Number two, because resurrection is real. Resurrection's real. So let's bring this thing back up here. Uh, with the reality of death at the core of this chapter, Paul actually starts the first 11 verses with the gospel, the indescribably good news that God has come to a sinful world and has made a way of salvation. Jesus has lived the life we could never live, a life of perfect obedience to God. He has died the death we deserve to die on a cross as a substitute in our place, and he has risen from the dead. He has conquered sin and death. That's, that's what, look at verse three in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Now, Paul's laying a foundation here that if we're not careful can seem pretty elementary to us. Like we can read through that and be like, okay, yeah, yeah. All right, Jesus died, he was buried, he was raised, he appeared to these people almost with a kind of ho-hum sense of monotony. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah I know that, but uh, just pause for a minute and think about that because there's nothing monotonous about that. Like we're talking about a, a guy who died a violent death, the most violent death conceivable in that day, and then after three days dead, he rose and started appearing to people. Imagine going to a funeral tomorrow. You see a man's body put in a coffin, that coffin put in the grave, dirt poured over the coffin. You walk away and next weekend, that guy comes up to you on the street and says hello. That's crazy. It's crazy good. It's the greatest news in all the world. Death has been defeated. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. This is the core of the gospel, but here's the problem. In Corinth, These believers had grown up with a Greek worldview that believed in the immortality of the soul, but not of the body. So when we die according to a Greek worldview, that's the end of the story for our bodies. Our soul goes on never to fill a body again. So many of these Christians at Corinth were denying that once they died, their bodies would ever be resurrected. Instead, only their soul would live on forever. So what Paul does in this chapter, he says, wait a second, do you realize the implications of what you're saying? 
Because if you're saying that the body is gone, soul alone lives on forever, you're saying Jesus himself didn't physically rise from the dead. This is verse 12, verse 13, verse 16. And then he starts saying, think about for a second if that's true. If Jesus did not physically rise from the dead, he says, think about some conclusions that flow from that. Four of them specifically. He says, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, well then number one, that means our faith is futile. And we stand guilty before God. Our faith is in vain, he says in verse 14. It's futile, verse 17. It's pointless, worthless. And it makes sense in this room. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then ladies and gentlemen, you have staked your life for eternity based on the decomposed corpse of a Jewish carpenter 2,000 years ago. You are to be most pitied. And verse 17 says that means you're still in your sins. Some people might say, well, I thought it was Jesus' death on the cross for our sins that made a way for us to be forgiven. Well, yes, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but the Bible teaches that in his resurrection, that's how we know that God has accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. So our justification is not a reality if Jesus is still dead. So our faith is futile, we stand guilty before God. That's one implication of Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. Second, that means our message is false and our mission is destructive. He says in verse 14, what we preach is in vain. Verse 15, we're found to be misrepresenting God. Basically, we're spreading lies about God, which makes our, our mission totally destructive. We're defaming God himself. Then he talks about how if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then those who died in Christ before us are now condemned before God. They're not in heaven with God. They died in their sin if they weren't justified before God through the resurrection of Christ. That means those who've gone before us in the faith are condemned before God. And then, last implication, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then going into risky, dangerous, difficult places in the world to say that Jesus has risen from the dead is to be pitied in this world. Like, what a waste of your life. Go to Somalia and spread false news that's not true that defames God and risk your life doing it. He says, there's no way. I don't know if you've ever heard of Pascal's wager before. So Blaise Pascal's theory, simplified, was that it's better to be a Christian than a non-Christian in the world solely because of the chances. So follow this, Pascal said, if you live your life as a Christian on earth and you later come to find out that Christianity's not true, then you won't have lost a lot because after all, you lived a good moral life of loving, serving other people. But, Pascal said, if you live your life as a non-Christian in this world, and then in eternity you discover that Christianity is indeed true, you'll have lost everything. And you'll spend an eternity in hell. So when you play the chances, it's just worth it. It's smarter to be a Christian. You can imagine that invitation. So take your chances. Come forward today. It's just smart. Pascal said that Paul couldn't disagree more. Now follow this. What Pascal said might be the case if all that's involved in Christianity was living a nice, decent, cozy Christian life amidst the comforts of this world. If that's what Christianity is, then what Pascal said makes sense. But ladies and gentlemen, that is not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is about laying down your life for the spread of the gospel. It's about embracing suffering. It's about going to hard places, needy places, difficult places. It's about forsaking possessions and pleasures in the world. It's about sacrificing comforts. It's about taking risks in faith. And that kind of life only makes sense if Christianity is true. 
Paul says, pity the way I'm living, the risks I'm taking, the sacrifices I'm making, the suffering I'm enduring. Feel sorry for me if Jesus is not risen from the dead. Paul says, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, my life makes no sense. Oh, can the same be said about your life? Will will the commentary be on your life? If they find some bones decomposed from Jesus, one day, would it be said of your life? His life made no sense then. Because he was living so all out surrendered to making the good news of Jesus known. So here's what happens. Paul just kind of unpacks all that. And then he says, thankfully, that's not true. In verse 20, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, which means everything we just talked about gets turned on its head. So our faith, because Jesus has risen from the dead, our faith is not futile. Our faith is well-founded. And we don't stand guilty before God. We stand forgiven before God. To every person in this room who has put your faith in the crucified and resurrected Christ, know this, you stand forgiven before God for all of your sins. It's the greatest news in the world for anybody in this room who has never done that. Like today, ah, I pray that today, even in these moments, that people in this room would realize that you are separated from God in your sin and that you would be drawn to put your faith in Christ, knowing you're not guaranteed to wake up tomorrow, so trust in Christ today. And the beauty is it's not a list of things you gotta do, it's trust in what God has done for you. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, our faith is well-founded. We stand forgiven before God, which means our message is true and our mission is urgent. There's nothing more important than getting this news out to those who've never heard it. We know those who've died in Christ before us are now dwelling with God above us, and they are like a cloud of witnesses cheering us on to live for what really matters in eternity. And what that means is risk-taking devotion to taking this gospel in the world is not to be pitied in this world. It's actually to be envied in this world. There's no wiser way to live than an all-out abandon to God saying, use my life for the spread of this good news right where I live and wherever you lead me. All of that because Jesus has risen from the dead. And then, oh, I wish we had time. The last part of this chapter just starts talking about the reality of our physical resurrected bodies, about how they will be imperishable and immortal and uh, beautiful and similar to what they are now, different. There's all kinds of questions people have about what is this going to be. I I think the, the thing I would encourage, just when you think about heaven, think about a physical place, new heaven, new earth, ultimately. Don't just picture some ethereal, otherworldly kind of picture where we're just kind of sitting around floating on clouds, like staring at light and singing songs for like a few quadrillion years. I think if that's what we think about heaven, it sounds like kind of a boring place to be. I just wanna encourage you, this is not endless choir practice we're going to. We're going to a new heaven, a new earth. We have bodies where we're enjoying creation as God has created us to enjoy it as we are fully with our creator with no more pain, no more hurt. I, I think about one of my favorite quotes from Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you may know Johnny's a quadriplegic. And she talks about her hope 
our hope of a glorified, resurrected body. And she says, I hope in some way that I can take my wheelchair to heaven. With my new glorified body, I will stand up on resurrected legs and I will be next to the Lord Jesus. And I will feel those nail prints in his hands and I will say, thank you, Jesus. He will know I mean it because he will recognize me from the inner sanctum of sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. He will see that I was one who identified with him in the sharing of his sufferings, so my gratitude will not be hollow. And then I will say, Lord Jesus, do you see that wheelchair over there? Well, you were right. When you put me in it, it was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. I do not think I would have ever known the glory of your grace were it not for the weakness of that wheelchair. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. And now, if you like, you can send that thing off to hell. Resurrection's real. Death is coming, but resurrection is real. Why, why else would you give your life to say, God, whatever, however you want me to go, do you want me to go? Third reason, because of where all history is headed. Where all history is headed. So this is verse 24. This is like an outline of history in a verse where, where all of history is going. Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Oh, let me sum this up. So last enemy to be destroyed. Well, I thought Jesus already defeated death. Well, he did. At the same time, we know death is still a reality. It's what we've been talking about for all of us. But there is coming a day when death itself will be no more. When there will be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more cancer, no more suffering, and no more death. Jesus is coming back, and he will. So Revelation 5, Revelation 7 gives us a picture of every nation, tribe, tongue, people gathering around his throne, giving him glory for all of eternity, enjoying him in a new heaven and a new earth. That's where all of history is headed. So here's the deal. Like, yes, yeah, like clap about that and then realize my life can be a part of seeing that happen. <laughs> Your life, an instrument in the hands of God to make his goodness known among every tribe and tongue and people. That is an awesome thought. So why would you not be open to however you want to use me to do that? You know where history's headed. Live for what's going to matter in history. So let me close with this. Uh, I got out of the Amazon a lot, and uh, I go to another part of this country we were in where the gospel had gone. And I see a ministry in this other part of the country. This is like the next couple days. Uh, there's an area of the city that we were in called Crackalangia. It stands for land of crack. Basically what they've done in the city is they've taken everybody who's addicted to crack and they've just quarantined them in a few city blocks in a couple of different places in the city. And so imagine walking through like a city square and you're surrounded by hundreds of people and they're all strung out on crack, totally addicted. There's a ministry that started right on the edge of that called Christalangia, Land of Christ. And every day the gospel's preached there. So that day I was there, had the privilege of preaching the gospel and inviting people to come out of Crackland and be restored and redeemed in Christ. So a few people come out, they begin a program where there's physical, emotional, and then spiritual, just pouring the gospel. Now, so it was a part of that, a couple days later, I'm at a pastor's conference, and the, that night 
before I preached, there was a group that was leading musical worship, and it was a group of people that had come out of Crackalangia through this ministry, Christalangia, and I want you to see them. So every, it's a grainy video, it's not high quality, it's just on my phone, but uh, every face you're about to see is the face of somebody who was on the street, totally strung out on crack. Watch this with me. This gospel is good. <laughs> this gospel has the power to totally transform lives. So if we believe that, then how can we not be willing to say, use my life however you want to make this gospel known to people who've never heard it. So that's the invitation today for followers of Christ around this room to say today, God, do you want me to go? How do you want me to go? Just, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Just pray that and see what God will do. You know, we gather down here at the front to pray for all kinds of things going on in and around our lives. I wonder if, if it would be appropriate if we did something similar, just saying, God, here's our lives for their sake. Let's take people far from us. So in just a minute, when we... Uh, we stand and begin to sing. I want to, I want to invite you, and obviously you can do this in your seat or your, where you're standing, but I also know there's something physically about getting before the Lord, even getting on your knees and just saying, God, here's my life. How do you want to use me? You want me to go? And I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. At the same time, there's gonna be leaders down here at the front who would love to pray with you if you'd like to. And then especially if you don't know for sure that if you were to die today, that you would be in heaven with God, I urge you to come down here, take one of these leaders by the hand and say, how can I know my eternity is secure in Christ? So this is a time for us to respond to God's words. So let me invite you to stand with me. This area at the front is open. I just wonder if maybe some, many, this needs to be the moment, not later in the day, where you just come before the Lord and say, use me however you want. Do you want me to go? Others of you responding as different leaders are down here, you just respond as God. God leads you now.